Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Noel Nuclear Brown. Good one. I like Intercontinental. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. So, from those oh, wait, two clues... Wait, yeah, how can we pass know? this one up? How about what? Noel Ballistic Brown? Oh, that's good. Yeah. Noel, did you hear that? that Do you might, like that one? That might be the best one of the year so oh, far. We got, we're, and we're at the end of the year. We got two thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, glad that, I'm glad that we, we got a good nickname, finally, in the beginning of... The podcast. <laughs> You're right here at the end of the year as well. <laughs> right here. Oh, well, okay. It gives us something to shoot for next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, intercontinental, ballistic, nuclear, uh, shoot for. All of these are really cool names. Peacekeeper. Peacekeeper. Mm-hmm. That's a heck of a nickname. So I was – this is completely unrelated, Scott and ladies and gentlemen, but I met a friend of a friend – that I used to know in high school. Guess what name he goes by? I can't even Snake Bite. Snake Bite. What no is what eighties movie did this guy walk out of? He goes by Snake Bite. He that's, that's he I mean, a grown man, and everybody calls him just that, not his real name. His no, I'm sure he, people still call him Justin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see why he's going with Snake Bite. No, I'm just kidding. That's fine. Justin, just Justin's put, a fine name. I'm kind of I'm kind of like. Uh, a little bit envious, you that know. Snake bite. That is a cool name to have. That's like that's like almost as cool as T Bone. You gotta you gotta have your wits about you to pull off T Bone. <laughs> you know what I mean? I guess so, yeah. You better do something. Oh, these cool. these nicknames, man. I I I am glad we started this a long, long time ago. Um mm-hmm. sorry our listeners are accustomed to this kind of talk at the beginning of the podcast, but <laughs> right? um yeah, we've got to we got to we got to work on stepping up our game for next year. Maybe yeah. uh, we got to like every one of them should be as good as like ballistic or T-bone or snake bite or something like that. <laughs> yes. Uh and and we can keep a list of the top ones later. Big dreams. But we're talking about nicknames here because this is one of my favorite things about military projects. I I don't know if you've noticed it, Scott, but every time I read about uh, something that the U.S. military has done, and and our military stands head and shoulders above other militaries when it comes to this. We have this love of cool. Can can I say this on the family show? Badass nicknames and and designations for stuff. And then there's someone in the Pentagon. I've always wondered if it's just like one guy in the Pentagon whose job is to make cool acronyms. You oh, it, ha- it has to be. I mean, uh, okay, so uh, just as an example of what we're talking about today. So go ahead and tell us what we're talking about. Today we are talking about something called the Peacekeeper Rail Garrison. Yes, yeah, so we're going to be talking about something that has to do with uh, trains today. We don't always focus on cars and trucks and mm-hmm. other things. like we, we focus on planes and boats and other things along the way as well. But today is a, a train-focused show. But this is... 
This is different, and you may have picked this up already from the uh, from the nick- nicknames, but um, yeah. there's something a little bit special about this particular train or this series of trains that uh, that were supposed to happen. Yeah, and let's go ahead and paint the picture here. So the U.S. has an extensive rail network, and at some point, many of the things that you purchase have been transported to your area via cargo ship and then rail. I can give you some numbers if you'd like. I'd love to hear some numbers. All right, so these are these are pretty current. These are from the U.S. freight and railroad industry, or the U.S. freight railroad industry. The number of freight railroads, so railroad systems in the United States, 575. Freight railroad miles, 138,524, and that's accurate as of 2016. So almost 140,000 miles of rail out there all across the United States. Um, you can get numbers like that from places like the AAR, which is the Association of American Railroads, or mm-hmm. um, the, the freight railroad industry um, spec sheets that they put out sometimes, you know, PDFs or whatever online. But you can find current information and, and how that's grown over the years as well. Um, yeah, and the construction of the interstate system took some of the pressure off rail as a means of transit, but it's still huge in this country and in many other countries and one thing that makes it uh one thing that differentiates it perhaps from the paved roads and the asphalt uh is that not everybody can drive quote unquote drive on the rail so it's a little bit more of a closed system right mm-hmm. uh this in particular, is one of the reasons that the Peacekeeper Rail Garrison came about as an idea. Well, we also have, we also have to mention this, though, yeah. and this is just another element of the story. Yeah. At the time we're, to- the time we're talking about, this is the end of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Yeah. Between yeah. the United States and the Soviet Union. Mid-80s. Now, yeah. now, this is something that's been going on since, what, 1947, mm-hmm. all the way through, uh, I think it ended around 1991, and that date is critical in the story. Uh, <laughs> right. The 1991 right. date. But, uh, but when this came about was right in the middle of, um, the Reagan administration. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's around 1986, wasn't it, when the idea was first kind of thrown out there? Very close, uh, very close. It's all, it's December 19, 1986. And so the idea was, and here's the, the main thrust of this whole podcast, is that this would be a railroad-based system for deploying peacekeeper intercontinental ballistic missiles. So you could d- deploy these all over the United States. Yep. And, uh, you know, keep them in motion. So hopefully keep, you know, the enemy guessing. Where are they? Hopefully. Uh, we'll poke some holes in that plan right, just, right, a, just right. a bit. But, um the idea was that they would remain mobile and they could roam the country and uh, either return or, you know, fire as necessary, you know, if given the command. And there's a lot to this whole story. I mean, it's it's interesting in the developments. It's interesting in the way that they um, they thought it was going to work, really. And yeah. then, again, you know, like what happened to the whole program, why it's not around anymore, because I guess that's a spoiler, Ben, you know, that uh, it's not, not around now, of course. Um, but... There's also there were there's some flaws in this uh, program right from the beginning as well, and uh, we'll we'll discuss those too at some point in the podcast. But um, man, where do you want to start on this? Because there's a there, there's so much to this. It's really interesting, fascinating. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, let's uh, let's start at the beginning, or let's continue because uh, you are you are correct. December nineteenth, nineteen eighty six. That's when the White House announces that uh, then President Reagan has given the green light. For this, uh, the reason it's the reason the rail garrison would be called the Peacekeeper Rail Garrison is because of the type of missile it would be carrying, uh, which was originally referred to as Nimex, as as we've mentioned. And what the idea, like what what the thing was actually supposed to be or proposed to be, would be fifty train-based missile launchers. Yeah, these would be on 25 separate trains, mm-hmm. two missiles per train, and uh, we'll just, you know, can I describe the train? Yeah, please. All right, so the train would consist of two locomotives, 
two cars for housing security forces, which was kind of like a modified boxcar, mm-hmm. two launchers, each holding a single missile. And, oh, by the way, we'll, we'll talk about the car itself in just right. a moment, but those are incredible rail cars. Um, those are also modified boxcar that we'll talk about, a refrigerator car. Um, a launch control car using a modified Westinghouse boxcar, and then a fuel car and a maintenance car uh, that also used a modified boxcar. Now, right. that, that, inc- that entailed hauling with them a crew of 42 people. 42 per train. Well, that's counting security as well, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but security is huge. So the 42 people, if you want to break that down, Mm -hmm. there's a train commander, Mm -hmm. there were four launch control officers, four railroad engineers, uh, one medic, six maintenance personnel, and then 26 security police. And they all had to be able to live on this train for a time period of up to one month. Right. The assumption being that they might have to be... Uh, you know, they might have to be in the wild, essentially. Continuous motion. You yeah. know, I mean, if if deployed, you know, they have to keep the enemy guessing where they are. And you got to remember, go back to 1986, and it's not like, you know, real-time instant satellite imagery of, you know, everything that's happening in the United States. And mm-hmm. and uh, we weren't being monitored quite quite as closely as um, we were as we are now, I guess, or we could be now. Um, this was more of a system where you know the satellites would pass overhead every uh, what two to three hours, right. and then they would have to mark mark everything and note the distances between them to see if anything was in motion. And that's um, similar. Uh, this this idea of being a moving target is similar, but not as efficient, which we'll get into as the idea behind nuclear submarines. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. These are. Uh, uh, a little easier to spot, really. I mean, well, yeah, that's one problem, right? That's I mean, the they're they're off the top. Yeah, they're on the ground, and I mean, if uh, you know, let's let's be honest, the enemy knows what you're up to, really. I mean, they do. Well, they um, know uh, they know all the places that you could go. So clearly, this is a big investment, and there are several holes that we can poke in the concept here. Uh, both with uh, with just our own research and then with the help of some uh, train train head forums. You yeah, know? yeah, the uh, train enthusiasts, I guess. Yeah. Rail fans, that's rail what they call fans. themselves, I think. Yeah. And uh, rail fans have a lot to say about this program and, and uh, maybe some of its shortcomings, but also some of the uh, the positives with it as well. But you mentioned price, Ben. Yeah. Um, I have some specs on the uh, on the missile itself. Oh, so. Uh, if you want to talk about the the actual missile that this thing was carrying, it was carrying something called the LGM-118 Peacekeeper missile. And that's an intercontinental ballistic missile. And we were having a little discussion beforehand about the LGM designation because you'll see it marked two ways. And mm-hmm. the way we have it figured, and I hope this is correct, <laughs> we found it a couple places. It's typically referred to as LGM-118 Peacekeeper. The ones on the train, however, are referred to as MGM-118. And, and Ben, you were thinking that that... M stands for something in particular, right? Yeah, for mobile. Okay, so the ones that were placed on the train then became mobile, and that's really just changed the first letter designation for the missile itself. Mm-hmm. Um, these are, again, intercontinental ballistic missiles, but they were nuclear-tipped intercontinental bl- ballistic yeah, ICBMs. I'll just say it that way. Yeah. How about yeah. that? I'm getting tongue-tied on the uh, on the long name, but ICBMs. And uh, they have a couple of different um, detonation mechanisms. They could either be ground burst or they could be uh, air burst. Uh, you know, they had two different modes. They were 71 feet, 6 inches in length, and the diameter was more than 7 feet. They're like 7.5 feet wide. These are huge missiles. So... Um, before I get into the numbers on this thing, yeah. I, I have to point out this photo that we've seen of, of this. Yeah, you, uh, Scott, you you snagged a pretty fascinating photo. If you check out the Peacekeeper Rail Garrison online in an image search, the first thing you'll see is a fairly lonely-looking modified boxcar and a fairly normal, average-looking one. Yeah, yeah. But the problem, well, click on that photo, though. Right. And that's where this becomes apparent, because you think, that's ah, not really, it's just a train car. It's a, it's a red train car. It's on a small piece of track that's out in the middle of a field. What gives? Yeah, really. So I clicked on that photo and enlarged it, and I realized about, uh, I you know, made it much larger on the screen, m- about midway down that boxcar, there is somebody standing in front of it, but in the small photo, you can't even see that person. It's like a speck. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the specs. So the length of the boxcars that would be holding the peacekeepers would be uh, 87 feet long, 10 feet wide, 15 feet, uh, almost 16 feet high. Yeah. And uh, they weighed like 
what, 550,000 pounds. These were, these were beasts. Yeah. They were clearly not normal boxcars. And, you know, Atlanta is a train town uh, where we record this podcast, and we have uh, some military contractors in the vicinity. So up uh, Interstate 75, which runs through Atlanta, you'll find uh, Lockheed plants. Mm-hmm. And every so often uh, along the rails, not necessarily always from Lockheed, sometimes from some military bases down south and stuff, you can see the trains running by with you know, uh, armored vehicles, military vehicles on there, components for air uh, aircraft, and what always gets me when we see all these trains crisscrossing, you guys, I keep wondering what's inside them, you know? Yeah. Because it could be, it, it could be like, uh, it could be two tons of Game Boys. You don't know. Yeah. It could, it could it, be empty. It's, it's always fascinating when you keep, when you, you have no idea what the, uh, what the, the, uh, the cargo is in those things because there's so much of it. You know, what is, what is it? Is it food? Is it, is it good? Uh, is it goods of some kind? You know, is it furniture? Or is it, you know, it could be cars. It could be, cars are usually evident. Yeah. But, um, it's just like wheat. Could be anything. I mean, but, but then you look at like something like this and you see this, uh, this cutaway where they reveal, you know, the inside. It's yeah. kind of like a, an artist, artist rendering of what this would look like as kind of like, um, um, a ghosted image of what it would look like inside the, the boxcar. Pretty incredible. Now that car, I mean, it's, it's just enormous in size. I mean, it, it dwarfs other rail cars, it seems. All right, so we were talking about the specs of this missile, right? And yeah. there's a couple more things before we get to the, the cost per missile, which always blows me away. It's amazing. Uh-huh. So um, <laughs> the operational range of this particular missile is 8,700 miles, and it's accurate within 393 feet 7 inches. Scary stuff. That is that's really, really accurate for Can you run 400 feet? Oh, man. And How they quickly? Were, yeah, they were in service from 1986 until about 2005. And, of course, this is the United States Air Force Initiative. That's who used it. All right, here we go. Cost per missile. In 1986, the cost per missile was approximately $70 million. And they were going to purchase 50 of these for this railway uh, um, initiative. This, and that, this thing. That, let's keep in mind that that rolls in R&D cost as well, right? Yeah, that's a, that, yeah, of course. That's a, that's, so each missile then becomes a $70 million purchase for the, for the military. Um, that $70 million in, in 1986 when these were ordered – would equate to something about uh, ballpark 155 million dollars each today. Oh my god! So a lot of money uh, when you're talking about 50 of those things. I didn't uh, I didn't multiply that by 50 by any you know to get the full number, but mm-hmm. um, there's more to it than that, of course, because then it would require you know a total of 50 of those giant Westinghouse modified rail cars that we were looking at just a moment ago. Yeah. Um, also, you know that train that I described in the crew of 42. Uh-huh. Uh huh. 50 of those. Oh no, I'm sorry, 25 crews. 25 trains. So, yeah. um, you know, for 50 missiles total. Yeah. Um, <laughs> unbelievable Enormous. program that they had planned. Yeah, really, really big. So this is going to be a huge uh, contract for a lot of people, really. And uh, this also, due to secrecy concerns, security concerns during the Cold War, uh, this required a little bit of subterfuge, shall we say, on the part of manufacturers and managers because in some cases, and this was a this was a big deal when it was exposed by 60 Minutes in the L.A. Times. In some cases, managers of product uh, of these projects had created false shell companies to get test equipment. Mm-hmm. And while that does seem disingenuous, and it certainly is, it was meant to be disingenuous because otherwise, there's somebody on the other side of the Atlantic. Or the other side of the Pacific. Look, Russia. There's someone in Russia, yeah, and and they're and they're monitoring purchases. Yeah, this is like the old shell game, right? I mean, yeah. you uh, you know, which one is it under, and who's doing what, and no one really knows exactly who's got the actual contract. It's uh, it's kind of the same idea as when. You know, they have three or four identical cars for a diplomat of some kind, and you don't know which car that person's going to be in. And it's it's like that kind of game. Yeah. It's like they're all identical. It, it could be in any one of those. It's for safety, safety all around, and it's just for also so uh, you know keep national secrets secret. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And here's the thing that may surprise some people: this was not the first project of its kind. And there were lessons learned from the past, and we'll get to them. But first, a word from our sponsor. (laughs) 
If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. And we're back. And Ben, just a moment ago, you were teasing us a little bit with, uh, you know, the, the idea that this might not be the first time the military had placed missiles on a train. Absolutely. You are right, Scott. Uh, they were taking some lessons from the Minuteman Mobility Test Train. This was a Cold War train also built for strategic air command testing uh before they launched Minuteman missiles on rail, or that was their plan at least, uh, they had a couple of things that happened with this. Uh, one of the big ones was Operation Big Star. That was a series of uh, U.S. military exercises using four trains uh, over the Northwest and Midwest during the summer of 1960. So if you were in that part of the country during the 1960s, you may have had some... Uh, <laughs> had some exciting things rolling by you in secret. and <laughs> I like that idea. Yeah. I mean, like you said before, you just have no idea what's in those rail cars when they yeah, pass no by. Yeah, no idea. And so despite these earlier demonstrations of the idea, it didn't really take uh, – the peacekeeper got pretty far. After several years of development, uh, the U.S. Air Force finally received – a prototype. Right. In 1990, that's when the prototype was delivered from the U.S. Air Force uh, to Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Mm-hmm. And then from there, the car was sent to a transportation test center in Pueblo, Colorado. And then for further testing um, to the uh, Association of American Railroads, they have like kind of a test track set up. Yeah. And here's what they planned to do. They, they planned to roll this on the test track, see if there were any problems, first with just the nuts and bolts of it, right? The yeah. mod- how does a modified rail of this – or how does modified rail stock of this sort function? Is everything copacetic on that front? Uh, and let's just not – let's pretend there's not going to be a nuclear warhead in here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then something – well, many people say it was wonderful – happened. 
the Cold War ended yeah. in well, 1991. Well, of course it'll. That's wonderful. But the uh, the problem was the timing with this. So here we are. We've got, uh, what, two examples of this that were built. Uh, the plan was to build another 23. I mean, I, again, it's good that all of this ended. I mean, let's, let's, let's sure. put it that way. It really is. But the problem was that the timing was just horrible on it. I mean, this is a war that had been going on since uh, 1947, as we mm-hmm. said. Here it is, 1991, and suddenly it abruptly ends. And, of course, I mean, clearly it wasn't expected to end. Uh, back in 1986, when all this was kind of, uh, you know, gearing up, I suppose, when they were right. ordering, you know, the contracts and all that. Uh, but glad it happened. So in 1991, that's basically the end. Uh, that's when the Soviet Union falls, and um, there's no longer need for this. So what are you going to do with, uh, you know, you've got this one prototype test car. They had two, but I think one of them, uh, I don't know if it exists. It just doesn't exist anymore. The other one was put on display um, in Dayton, Ohio. At the Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, uh, starting in 1994, but they took those missiles. They've got they had two missiles as well, right? That were yeah. formerly MGM missiles, as we mentioned before, mm-hmm. and they moved them into some silos, like uh, any other standard ICBM would be. Yeah, and once they once they put them there, the program, you know, got scrapped, and that's that's fortunate for history, right? Yeah, uh, but it's also fortunate for some practical reasons and this goes into our i guess myth busting our skepticism regarding this project yeah and you know what let's talk about that in just a moment after we have one more word from our sponsor if you use paper you're a human but if you choose paper you're a papertarian someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day savings event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options see homedepot.com slash delivery for details the home depot how doers get more done and we are back scott 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 Benjamin, Scotty B lay it on me <laughs> well, lay, it, lay it on me and the rest of our listeners here uh why is this – I'm not going to say a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Why is it not as smart as it might seem at first? Well, okay, a lot of this comes from a train form that you pointed me to, and it was uh, it was cs.trains.com. And, uh, you know, the, this form that's discre- you know discussing, I guess, j- just this in particular, this, uh, this peacekeeper uh, garrison. And the, the, some of the, the, the thought processes that they go through are different than, uh, you know, somebody who's not really a, a rail fan would have. So they, they understand 
what it takes, you know, to rebuild rail after it's damaged, and they understand um, the limitations of, of the, tra- you know, the, uh, mm-hmm. um, the, tra- the, I guess, traveling on rail, and they understand the, the the whole system more than us. Like, you know, what what it would take to keep this thing on the road for a month uh, with this type of payload, right? And uh, it, you know, they they have a different thought process than than a lot of us do. So it was interesting to read through those. One thing that I initially thought of before we get into some of their concerns, and we've kind of touched a couple of them already, but um, one thing that I was thinking of was that, you know, if if the enemy knows that you've got these on on rail, mm-hmm. then they simply watch rail. They don't have to watch the rest of the open country to find out where they are. Now, these twenty or these fifty missiles, rather, on twenty five trains were supposed to supplement an additional. 50 missiles that were in silos all around the United States. So, you know, there's potentially 100 um, ICBMs of this type, of this sort, all over the, spread across the United States. So that's a, that's a lot of targets. And I guess, you know, maybe the, uh, the underground missile um, silos are a little bit easier to hide maybe than the, the trains. Sure. I, if the enemy knows what you're up to, if, he, if, you know, if that's something you can monitor. But then again, we talked about the monitoring, and that was difficult then too because of the technology. It just wasn't what it is now. So yeah. uh, it was a little bit more archaic in the way they had to do it with the, uh, you know, the, the, the satellite passovers, you know, the... Um, the occasional spotting. Yeah, 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 with, you know, the taking reconnaissance photos as they passed over, but that was only good every, you know, two or three hours or whatever it was, you know, as they passed overhead or, or how, how often it was. I can't remember the, the, the interval. Um, but it was a, a different system and it required a lot more effort to really track something, uh, than it does now. So that's one flaw right there. Yeah. Uh, the rail fans had a, a bunch of other stuff to, to say as well. So here's one. Uh, what happens when it fires? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen the test, uh, I, I guess the test launch of these things? Um, it, it does a lot of damage underneath when it, when it fires, oh, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. And, and, um, you know, this is a missile that's good. It's, it's, well, here, it's got, what, three stage, three, th- three stages of solid rocket fuel on board, but you can imagine that the one that it requires to, um, you know, cheat gravity is a very strong stage, uh, you know, when right. it, when it ignites. So, um, what's that gonna do to not only this, uh, this, you know, the, these prototype rail cars that they have built, but what's it going to do to the surrounding cars, the control cars, you know, the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the quarters cars, I guess, the ones where the people sleep, the, the rail itself, you know, that it's sitting I'm on? Sure, they thought about this too. But what about the fuel car? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, okay, so within a, uh, a short distance, there is a fuel car. And right. that, that is a problem. You're right. So you pointed this out earlier, and I don't know if you have access to this right now where you can read what somebody said, but, um, they said, well, that's, that's a great plan and everything, but, uh, but what about this? And, and they list, they laundry list a bunch of items that they would need to take with them to repair the track after they fire. Yeah. Yeah. They said, uh, it should be fine as long as you brought along the fire trucks, a crane, a flat car full of panels, track gang, and another set of cars with track machinery for what you did after the thing was set off while parked on the main line somewhere. And the original premise was to be tucked into a road freight or road switcher, uh, consist of coal trains, uh, tucked between a set of buffer cars. Uh, no special train going into and out of Cheyenne, uh, Warren Air Force Base. And then the question is, uh, what happens to the fright of a crisp car the thing launched from, even if it's in a condition to move? You know what I mean? <laughs> it seems like you would just knock it over, recouple the train wherever you can, and, yeah. get, and get back to the base. But the problem was the track itself would be – I mean, this thing, it's a violent – thing when this when this launches yes. very violent and very hot and uh, it would melt and and uh, you know it, it would cause a lot of issues with the track itself so you would have to replace a segment of the, of the train track uh, it becomes a huge logistical issue that's something they didn't think of and and in fact the the you know the, the rail fan guys mentioned uh, that you know maybe they had they should have consulted with somebody that has knowledge of that type of you know yeah. that type of system and they didn't um, they, they clearly didn't uh, there were a lot of problems that, uh, in addition to that, there were more problems as now, well, right? Yeah, I, I want to point out, though, uh, that they were thinking of these as single-use throwaways, and mm-hmm. this was not, this was primarily a defensive measure rather than a, um, an aggressive measure. Ah, okay, so this is, um, yeah, I understand. So it's it's fired in, uh, in response to a first strike. Yeah, right? it's more okay. to hide them. Its first purpose is to... Hide these missiles, get all the eggs out of one basket. Yeah, yeah, smart move, right? Smart move. That That's is a smart, smart move, and I guess you could you could deploy them uh, via road, sure. But you know, then there's the same issues, I guess. You know, the same thing with the, uh, you know, uh, are the rail are the road systems in uh, 
fair enough condition for them to travel. Um, you know, there's, there's always going to be an issue with when you're, when you're trying to deploy something like this. Like, how are you going to make sure that it gets to where it's supposed to go? You you can't really ensure that. And I, I guess one thing that somebody would say right away, almost to every comment, you know, you could you could respond this way. You've got bigger problems if you're launching nuclear missiles at another nation. Uh, right. you know, you've got bigger problems than what's happening with that, you know, 200 yards of track or what, or whatever. Um, you're not worried about freight necessarily at that point. Maybe later you will, but you probably won't. When you're rebuilding the nation. Well, yeah, when you're, uh, you know, rising from the ashes. That's yeah, the problem. Because sure. that, that's the situation you're in when, when these were to be used, like if they're launched, that's a that's kind of a doomsday scenario. Yeah, and I know that sounds a little dramatic, but it's absolutely no, accurate. That's these not, are, this is how you have to plan for these. That's things. not dramatic. Back then, it was always a real possibility, a real threat. You're right. Uh, we cannot separate this from the context, uh, the time in which it occurred. Uh, but we also would be remiss if we did not acknowledge one of the biggest problems with the plan. And again, this comes from uh, the cs.trains.com form. What if someone just blew up the tracks right outside of the base? Be- so contain them. Yeah, before these uh, vehicle, before these uh, 25 trains were able to roll. So the first strike then would actually be a, uh, you know, a, a small attack, I guess, on the train, on the, on the rail itself. Yeah. And then, uh, and then from that point, you know, then it's kind of like you're sitting duck. And that, that could happen because, again, there was so much espionage going on during that time, uh, you know, back on both sides, of course, um, and probably still now. I'm sure there is. Um, you know that somebody knows what's going on at all times. It's not, there's really not a lot of secrets. Uh, you know, you think you're keeping secrets, but uh, there's not really a lot of secrets. Not too many secrets. And these are, I mean, these are these are awful big things to keep secret. A, a train, like a train, as I've described, is tough to keep secret. It really is. I mean, I understand there's other things that you can, you know, uh, keep contained and maybe uh, you know keep a lid on. But uh, the, the 25 trains like this, uh, that's that's a tough <laughs> thing. That's a tough thing to uh, you know keep under your hat. Even David Blaine. Would have a difficult time, right? Well, yeah, and you know, just pointing out the the simplicity of of a you know of a simple uh, destroying of a of a section of railway, you know, to to contain uh, you know your best plan. <laughs> that's 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 a huge flaw right there. I mean, uh, there's a lot to it, I guess. You know, there'd be a lot of planning involved, and you know, um, I don't know if that was something that was really possible, but because uh, these were scattered all over the United States too. I mean, they were they were housed or they were supposed to be housed at at many different bases. It wasn't like they were all coming from one place. Right, right. The the issues that we see are you know are present. They're not gonna they're not gonna go away. Yeah, and and I'll tell you, I mean, just so that you get an idea, there were ten bases that were in the running for um you know they having these missile crews and on continuous alert at, you know with with these trains, and they were all over the place. They were in Washington, North Dakota, Texas, Missouri, Arkansas, Michigan. Uh, they were just they were scattered all over the United States, and and. I guess if you didn't really know exactly where they were, you would have, and you can't blow up the railways that come out of every single base in the United States. It's a it's a huge undertaking. Um, so the chances are that you know they would they would be able to do that and and kind of uh, cripple the whole operation. Uh, that's that's unlikely. Yeah, it's it's unlikely, but this is also a world of you know uh, a, a world where. A tiny likelihood of a massive catastrophe is worth planning for. Yeah, sure. And know? and everything that we're talking about, because of this timing, this awful timing, is all what ifs. I mean, it never really yeah. came to fruition, you know, I mean, outside of the, the prototype and uh, I think one other, uh, which I, I still don't know where that second car went. I but mean, uh, thank God. <laughs> I think a lot of people who don't have earlier experience with it, I think a lot of people would be surprised by how... Um, how intertwined national security or, or global militaries are with their rail systems. So if you look at some of the rail stations in North Korea or Russia, uh, several function as bomb shelters as well. And some were built specifically for troop transport. Yes. I yeah. mean, that, that was a common way to uh, to bring in and out goods and supplies to distant ports mm-hmm. uh, because it was much easier than, uh, you know, traveling on roads that were almost non-existent or were, you know, in, uh, susceptible to, you know, weather or uh, just, na- you know, nature of all kinds or, or, of course, you know, Robbery, you know, I mean, they were right. they could be set up in that way. Um, railway, I guess, same way, but um, it's it's uh, 
it's just an efficient, quick way to get stuff in and out of a, um, uh, of a distant location, a remote location. Would you ever be a train conductor? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Why is that? Never. I just, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that it's something that I have any kind of interest in doing. I, maybe it's because a lot of times when you hear about trains, it's because either either derailing, they've hit a car at a crossing. Um, you know, it just seems like, I, I don't know, it's, it's fairly rare, but... When you think about what it takes to stop a train, when you think about um, you know the, the responsibility that's on the shoulders of those guys all the time, I know yeah. that they're what they're what they're at the very front of as they as they cross the country. Um, it's unbelievable. I mean, it'd be a lot of pressure on that job, I would think. Oh, and you know what we must mention? Uh, well, wait a minute. You haven't answered yet. Would you Would you ever be uh, you know at the, at the head of the train? Would you ever <laughs> Would you ever uh, what do you call it, steer a train? Yeah, I don't know if you steer a train. Conduct. You conduct a train? Is that what you do? Yeah, that's a train conductor, man. I guess. I mean, but you still say steer a train because you don't really steer it. No, Just kinda, no. No? I, I would totally hang out in a train car. Would you? I, yeah. I would hang out in one, sure, but I don't think I'd want to be like the, the, the main guy, the guy that's in charge. Oh, I yeah, I think you have to earn that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you I, just my, hop in yeah. and they say, okay, keep an eye, here's I, the break. I imagine like a, a completely out of control, uh, you know, situation like, uh, you know, you've seen Polar Express, right? Uh-huh. Like when they're crossing that lake and the track's sinking into the uh, in the lake. It's it's completely unrealistic, of course, but, uh, but I imagine something like that going on, you know, if I was at the controls. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> You're just gonna li- you're gonna I'm leave just that. Gonna one. Let that one go. <laughs> well, okay. Here's the thing. Uh, I'm fascinated by trains. Yeah. Uh, and I would love to maybe do a ride along. You know. Yeah. One one week. I love riding trains. And it's fun. I mean, not, I'm not talking like hopping a boxcar type of situation. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like you know, buy a ticket and sit on there, you know, and take their uh, no, take their dinner cruise or, or not cruise, a dinner uh, dinner car. Yeah, the dinner car, car, wherever they, they just go straight out and straight back. Yeah, I've done that before. Um, I think there's somewhere you can sleep overnight. That'd be kind of fun, maybe. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I don't know. Would, I would love I, to travel by train. W- would you like to be part of the crew though? Like you know, someone who's working on a train. I don't know. It depends on what I'd have to do. You know, I don't think uh, my grandmother lives right near a train track. It goes right past her house. Oh yeah. And she mentioned something to me a few years ago, and she said that uh, there are no more cabooses on trains. You don't see a caboose anymore. No. And unless it's like a novelty. Is that because there's less crew? Is that is that what's going on? Because that's where the crew would kind of hang out, right? That's their uh, that's their quarters. So does that mean that it takes fewer people now to run a train? I, I'd love to know why there are no more cabooses on trains. But she she's noticed it years ago. And uh, and mentioned it to me, and now that I'm paying attention to it, I, I see that I see that there are no no yeah, cabooses. Yeah, there haven't been cabooses. I unless the design changed, I haven't seen them. Apparently, they were on every freight train until the 1980s uh, because of safety laws. But then those laws got relaxed until the 1980s. So, but but you know what? They hung on a lot longer than that because. Um, I, I can clearly I remember seeing all, cars. Well, 1980s was when they had all cabooses. All trains had to have cabooses. Okay, what? It sounds like happened is that the relaxed law a little bit. So now you, if you see a caboose on a train, it, it's either a tourist railroad, you know, like the one that runs in Stone Mountain or something. Sure, because people expect it to be right. there, or yeah. it's a or it's a hazmat train. Oh, really? Oh, that okay. Would be one of the other ones because they require extra crew. They you gotta have someone to blame if something goes wrong. Guys in the back. It's the guys in the back that are the problem. It's the caboose crew. Yeah, it's not me, the conductor, as you hey, say. I want to say this, Scott, before. <laughs> Before we get out of here, okay. Uh, before we get out of here, I do want to point out that this program we mentioned earlier how it did not begin in a vacuum uh, because there were earlier domestic programs, but the Soviets had one too. They had two programs that were very similar. Where did they get that idea, or did we get that idea from them? See, that's th- the that's the thing. I think we got it from. Well, that's that's <laughs> interesting because the way the timing works out. Because we had the earlier program, we, it wasn't Scott and I back then, but, you know, like the U.S. Yeah. Had the program uh, in the in the 1960s, that testing, and then the Soviet program uh, ran, uh, had two branches, uh, the S-24 and the S-25. These were mobile intercontinental ballistic missile launchers. The, the first one, the 24, ran on railroads, and the second one, the 25, ran on paved roads. And so... Also, that was a uh, like a truck-based system. And so apparently, 
yeah, apparently we said, hey, this is kind of a good idea. <laughs> it was it was probably a lot less plagiarism and a lot more concern for um, some kind of like gapping capability. Sure. Yeah, that's uh, – well, I guess you could, you could maybe just take it at face value and think that they were developed, uh, you know – um, separate from one another, you know that uh, someone that you know how that works out, right? We've yeah. talked about that about vehicles and all kinds of things, inventions that happen simultaneously, uh, that are the same idea, but they have not have, ne- have never heard of each other. Uh, you know, have never seen a design from somebody else. It just happened to happen right around the same time. You know, within a year or two of each other, right? Because the infrastructure in this case, the infrastructure already exists, so I, it is possible. I would like to think that's the way that happened, but I, I feel that that's like a, a copying thing. You know, that uh, they've got this, we better do that. Sure, it is. And the days of the mobile ICBM are not over by any means. Uh, in 2011, research suggested that both China and Russia were redeveloping those mobile systems, uh, but they were redeveloping stuff that had previously been scrapped. Hmm. You know, uh, likely smaller too, if I had to guess. I mean, probably I, miniaturization I, is one of the big moves. I mean, I have no uh, no notes in front of me, but I, I I wonder if they're still 71 and a half feet long, and if you know they're mm-hmm. eight feet wide or whatever they mm-hmm. were. Um, I, I just wonder, you know, how that looks now. Compared to then. Here's the thing, though. If the U.S. Air Force were to get involved with a similar program, a study by the RAND think tank said that new uh, systems of this sort would very likely cost almost two times, perhaps even three times more than just using what we already have. Wow. This kind of development's expensive, so I would be surprised if at this point we saw those um, – we saw those kind of systems coming back. This is sort of a a snapshot, a brief glimpse at some one of the projects considered during the Cold War. And there are so many other strange things they have done with vehicles. You know, I'd like to hear from our listeners on this one, man. Yeah, I would too. I mean, uh, this is okay. You said it's just one. So this is the Peacekeeper Rail Garrison. Mm-hmm. What were some of the more unusual? programs that the military had, uh, probably, you know, I'm going to bet you find a bunch of them right around that time in the Cold War era because oh, yeah. all the secrets that were kept and all the, you know, oh, the interesting yeah. th- interesting ideas that they had about deployment. Um, I read somewhere, some, you know, this is maybe the last thing that I have really, but right. one of their ideas was that they were going to somehow keep missiles underneath the Great Lakes, uh, you know, that they were, and here's the way they were described. They said just kind of rolling around underneath the Great Lakes without... <laughs> Without any other description than that. Now, I don't know how that would work. I don't know what they're talking about, but rolling around underneath the Great Lakes. That's got to be hyperbole. <laughs> I think it is. And they said, you know, uh, Canada had a lot of objections to that, of course. You know, we're keeping our missiles underneath the lake that, you know, we share in between the uh, the border there. Well, nobody um, wants so, a foreign country's well, nucle- military yeah. hardware on their border. Yeah, nuclear tip missiles, you know, just below the surface of the water. You don't want that, really. Where That's are you guys not- putting them? Oh, they're just rolling around. Don't worry, they're they're they're, uh, they're underwater, real close. Don't worry. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, there there are ideas like that out that are out there, and I wonder, uh, you know, how many other really strange. Uh, programs there were that, you know, have something to do with rail or air or, um, you know, some type of uh, road transport. Uh, I'd I'd just be fascinated to see what's going on. Yes. And uh, as time passes, we learn more about this stuff in retrospect. Yeah. And it also makes me think of what's going on now. Well, yeah, we talk about DARPA and we talk about, you know, some of the, the crazy stuff, but that's that's only what they tell us, of course. You know, there's nothing. You know, we we don't really get to know the juicy stuff until years after it's already happened, and they say like we canceled that. But this is how cool it would have been. I want to hop on one of those surveillance blips if they're not. <laughs> uh, I think some may be unmanned, but is this the one that? Okay, this is the one that they were talking about using for the Olympics. Is that the one they could take images of the whole city and you could zoom oh, in? Oh, for Rio de Janeiro. Is that what we're talking about? The, uh, uh, that's the... definitely one of them. Okay, but there there are others that are uh, apparently at very very high altitudes. Oh man. Okay, we've got a lot to talk about. I've been that. trying to hop in that Goodyear blimp. You know, you see the one rolling around the city. Yeah. For for like six months now. <laughs> I you know I've read something somewhere. I think you have to be invited to do that. I don't think you can. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they just they allow you to like. No, you can't. You know, walk up and say I've got five thousand dollars. I'd like to ride. I think you have to be <laughs> specifically invited because you know it's usually over a, a, an event. You know when they fly. Yeah. Unless I they're would transporting. Love it. to do it. Yeah. Okay. Well, noted. Just putting that out there. It's, it's out there in the ether now. If so there's uh, a, if there's a, a blimp tycoon, if there's uh, someone with Goodyear, 
<laughs> yeah, ben would love to have a ride. How about the MetLife blimp? Would you like to ride in that one, or just any any blimp in particular, or does it have to be the Goodyear blimp? Got to be the good. No, I'm kidding. Any <laughs> blimp? Are you kidding? Any any port in a storm? Well, I mean, but yeah, that's kind of the that's like the the uh, uh, the iconic one, right? Well, okay, absolutely nothing to do with the Peacekeeper Rail Garrison, but Scott, I will confess to you, my favorite airship scene is, of course, from Indiana Jones. Where they're attempting to escape, escape Germany, yeah, and they're turning it around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of want to do the Indiana Jones thing, mm-hmm. which I know they won't let me do because I would destroy the ship. You should ask. Yeah, who knows? They probably get that all the time. They might have an old one laying around, you know, like that. They're just <laughs> like, why don't you take them out in old number six over there? I, I don't think. I doubt that there is a. Uh, I doubt that there is a, a throw throwaway blimp. <laughs> But you know what? Dare to dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be like the uh, the clunker on the lot, you know? Yeah, right. Uh, well, while we go off to see if we can hitch a ride on a blimp or destroy one to reenact an Indiana Jones film, you can check out some of our earlier podcasts, all of which are available at carstuffshow.com. We've done some stuff on locomotives in the past. Uh, we've done a little bit on rail racing as well. Uh, so you can check those out for free. You can also find Scott and I on Facebook and Twitter where we are Car Stuff HSW. And if you have a suggestion for something we should cover in an upcoming show, something you think your fellow listeners would like to know, or uh, if you have some personal experience with the, the world of rail. Or can you arrange that blimp ride? Or you can arrange a blimp ride. We'd love to hear from you. You can write to us directly. We are Car Stuff at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. 